Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top. This podcast contains frank discussions about the body, sexuality, and occasionally uses swear words, which may not be appropriate for people under the age of 18. This podcast also uses facts, statistics, and mathematics, which may not be appropriate for liberal arts majors. And this podcast relies on science and reality, which may not be appropriate for evangelicals. Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top. You're here with your host, Auntie Vice. I'm here today with Spencer Bishens. He reached out to me to do the show because he's written a book on understanding social security and disability and filing for it. If you're a regular listener to the show, you know we've had a number of disabled advocates on here talking about the ins and outs of disability. So Spencer has a master's degree from the London School of Economics, which is truly impressive, and a law degree from Florida State University. After law school, he worked in private sector for a few years prior to joining the Social Security Administration in 2000. He worked for the Appeals Council for almost four years, reviewing thousands of disability decisions for compliance with the SSA's complex rules. And if you've ever applied, you know how complex those are. He, was, he worked at the hearing level for seven years, where he drafted almost 2,000 decisions for the SSA administration law judges. After working for them for more than 10 years, he wanted to help demystify the complicated disability system. His first book, Social Security Disability Revealed, Why It's So Hard to Access Benefits and What You Can Do About It, exposes the obstacles that disabilities claimants face as they try to access the system, which so many of you are in the process of doing or will soon be in the process of doing. Welcome to the show, Spencer. Thank you for having me. Great to have you on. Social security and disability have to be one of the most onerous processes out there. So let's start with just some of the basic demystification of of SSI and SSDI. People think SSI and Social Security and Disability, when you get sick, you apply, they give you benefits, and cool, you're sitting pretty. Is that the case? Well, that's certainly what a lot of people think. Um, At the initial level, very few people have someone representing them. Like you said, I get sick, I get injured, maybe I apply for unemployment or workers' comp and those run out. And I think, oh, I just take my stack of paper medical records because that's what we have in the United States, a 20th century medical record keeping system. And I walk into a social security office and I plop them down. And in a few weeks, my first check comes in. But of course, that's not at all how it works. Uh, Applying actually has gotten quite easier because you can now apply in the social security website. But at the initial level, the chances of being approved are not good. Uh, Over 70% of people are denied at that initial level. And the cases that are approved are cases that are pretty extreme, like a car accident or something where 
there's a major acute event and you're in the hospital for quite a long time and you've got thousands of pages of medical records, that's the kind of case that gets approved at the initial level. But for a lot of people with anxiety, depression, fibromyalgia, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, uh, other chronic neurological connective tissue disorder type conditions, the chances of being approved at that initial level are very low. And it's designed that way, right? So if you're a construction worker, you fall, you are seriously injured and you can no longer do this again. And it's really clear, like you're missing an arm or you lose a leg, like the visible disabilities are easier to prove, right? Well, yeah, but even those, as you said, the system is literally in the law written by Congress designed to be difficult. I'll give you an example related to what you just said. The social security listings, which are basically this list of impairments and elements, and if you meet them, you're basically just automatically found disabled. Well, the one involving uh, musculoskeletal impairments and walking says that you need to have a handheld device where you use both hands. So if if you have a problem in one leg and you're using a cane, That is a one-handed device. It's literally written into that listing that that is not a disabling impairment. You need to be, you need to require a walker with both hands. Uh, But also just the definition of disability written by Congress for Social Security says you have to be unable to work for a full 12 months. So right there, it's written into the law that if you have some kind of injury and it's expected that you would heal in the next 11 months, you're immediately disqualified from social security disability. So yeah, it's it's meant to be difficult. It's meant to be for only the most extreme circumstances. And that's one of the reasons why so many people are unexpectedly denied. And it's also harder if you've had partial disability and you've been working through it, right? So if you've had some type of chronic illness, whether it be a mental health condition, an autoimmune condition, something like that, and you've been able to say, maintain jobs for five or six months, and then you're sick, so you lose the job and then you go back, right? That creates a very difficult way to prove that you can't work, correct? Yeah, and not only, and for a couple of different reasons, not only because it sort of looks like you can work, But also, again, to go back to the definition of disability, you have to be unable to work due to your impairment. Uh, In the book, I talk about the five-step sequential evaluation process, which is how the agency decides if you're disabled. Literally, step one, the very first question is, are you working at the substantial gainful activity level? And in plain terms, what that means is, are you working and earning enough? And enough is defined for 2022 as $1,350 in a month. So if you're earning $1,350 in a month, the agency doesn't even ask you what your medical impairments are. They just say, you can work, done. There's an exception to that because there's something called an unsuccessful work attempt, where if you're not working and you try and go back to work and you can't do it, they can decide that doesn't count. But that's up to the judge. There's some discretion there. And uh, this is just one example of how complex, how 
deep, how convoluted the social security regulations can be. Every rule seems to be like, there's a rule, but there's this exception, but to that exception, there's these three other exceptions. And that's why it's so important to have a representative looking out for your interests, a professional representative who knows the system, but also equally as important to know the system yourself, at least the basics. Here's the five steps. Here's what an unsuccessful work attempt is. Here's what this means. And that's why I wrote the book, because I want people to be able to go into this process as educated claimants, as educated participants. And I will testify as somebody who's been through the process and had what I thought would be a pretty clear-cut claim and thousands of pages of medical records and two years documented that I was unable to work and all of that. It still took five years to get through the process, a lawyer, and we went all the way to the final judge before they decided that that this was an actual disability. So for people who have less clear-cut disabilities, and that's a, a very large growing percentage of Americans where it may be a dynamic disability, where you feel okay on some days, but not other days of the month. And I believe with Social Security, it's like 21 days you have of the month you have to be unable to work or something because of health. How do you even begin that? Pro is it even worth beginning the process and the frustration um, of going through it if you have something where you may be able to babysit, you know, for your grandson where you're, you know, your children pay you for those few days a month or whatever? Is it, is it even worth it? Well, it's certainly worth understanding how the program works, how Social Security tells you it's supposed to work, and how then it actually works. And I, and I go through all of that in the book. And the reason I say that is, going back just to Social Security's definition of disability, it's the inability to do work at the substantial gainful activity level, which is a dollar amount for the whole month. So if you get paid $1,350 per hour, you only have to work one hour that month. Uh, anyway, so inability to work due to medical impairments for a full 12 months. And at step five of the sequential evaluation, once they look at your medical conditions and they see if you can do any of your past work, the last step in that process is, can you do any other work, any other work that exists in significant numbers in the national economy? And so, yeah, it's important to think about what that means. It's not, can you do your specific job, your specific field, a job that you like doing? Social Security at your hearing, will, as you know, you had a hearing, I presume, will bring in a vocational expert and that vocational expert will say, well, this person can do these three jobs and they might be dishwasher, envelope stuffer, they're using a document called the Dictionary of Occupational Titles, which is issued by the Department of Labor. This is a something issued by the federal government, but it was last revised in the early 90s. So you might also hear things like elevator operator or telegraph operator as jobs you can do to prove that you're not disabled. So, I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but it's obviously really serious for a lot of people. They're sitting there in their hearing thinking, I can't work. And this person's telling me I can go be an elevator operator because I can't walk, but I could sit on a stool. So I guess I can operate an elevator. So 
it's worth knowing and understanding what the program is and what it's not. And for some people who are under 50 and maybe can, can do a sit-down job, it, understanding that if that's your situation, you're not going to be found disabled, maybe you just decide this isn't worth getting into because I know what the outcome is going to be. And that, that could be really helpful. It saved years of anguish and frustration only to get that result, right? Mm-hmm. But other people might actually learn, I didn't think I was disabled, but actually I am. And here's just a quick example. Um, let's say you're 55 and you don't think of Social Security until you're 65. So you didn't think you could get it 10 years early. And you've, you're you working a warehouse. So you're doing what they call a medium job because you have to lift up to 50 pounds. Well, you have some kind of leg or back injury, and now you can only do light work. You can't lift as much. Well, actually, the Social Security regulations, because they help they they help people more who are over fifty, might actually be supportive of you becoming being found disabled when you didn't think you would be able to get disability. So it goes both ways, but it's all about understanding the program and the requirements and knowing what will happen. And, and therefore, you can be prepared for that process. Well, in age, like you pointed out, makes a difference, right? If you're under 40, it's going to be a much more difficult hill to climb because they don't want to provide somebody benefits 25 years, 35 years before they would normally retire, correct? Right. And the cutoff is, is age 50. Um, there are these things called the grid rules. And I, I have a whole chapter in the book called what the grid rules are and how judges get around them. And they don't always get around them. I wrote plenty of favorable decisions finding someone who was over 50 or over 55 disabled because they met one of these grid rules. What the grid rules are, are basically a shortcut to finding someone disabled if they're over 50 or 55, depending on their medical circumstances and their past work. and the judges do use them. And so once you're over 50, once you meet that cutoff, first it's all based on your medical records, but it can be a little bit easier to get a favorable decision. But you're right, for people under the age of 50, if you can do sedentary, meaning sit down work, it's unlikely that you're gonna be found disabled. Now there are of course a lot of caveats to that. You could have a mental health impairment that prevents you from being around other people or being able to do a full 40 hour work week. But just the idea that, well, I can do a sit down job, but there are no sit down jobs in my town. That's, that's not enough. The social security rules apply to everyone nationally the same. Um, they don't want to treat someone who lives in rural Alabama differently than someone who lives in Manhattan. And so in order to keep things equal, it's a national consideration. And that's why they ask if you can do work that exists in the national economy, even if no one's hiring in your town. And with that, too, they also don't take into consideration things like it's very difficult if you've been off of work for two or three years because of an illness. Returning to the workforce and trying to find a job can be astronomically difficult. People don't like folks with large gaps in the resume, especially if you have to say, well, I had to quit because I was sick. Right. There's there's a bias right. against hiring people that are sick. Even if even if you 
even if you've only been out of work for two weeks, let's say you don't have a gap, right? When they say, oh, okay, here are your work hours. If you have doctor's appointments, if you can only work a certain amount of time, if you need to sit down every so often, yeah, there's all kinds of reasons. Of course, it's illegal to discriminate against people who have disabilities, but we all know that employers do that all the time. And I mean, if, if you're running a warehouse and you need someone to be walking around lifting heavy things, from the employer's perspective, they don't want someone who's going to need to sit down every five minutes. So I'm not saying it's right, and it's certainly not legal, but we know that it happens. Well, and even in offices, though, right in for a secretarial position, you have to be able to lift at least 25 pounds. And that's a way to screen out anybody with a physical disability so you don't have to make reasonable accommodations, which is what's written. Right. And the thing with sedentary jobs is, yes, sometimes they do require some lifting, even if it's mostly sitting, there's some lifting, Mm -hmm. there's some interaction with other people because you're answering the phones, you're meeting customers, there's some standing and walking. So even sedentary job, the dictionary of occupational titles and vocational experts will pretend like, well, you're just sitting most of the day. But of course, we know those jobs require, in reality, in, in the year 2022, those jobs require all kinds of different things that may not be written into the job description. And yeah, of course, once you, you know, you're sitting in the interview for 30 minutes, and at some point, you have to stand up because your back hurts, the employer sees that. And yeah, of Mm -hmm. course, they're going to be concerned about hiring someone. But there's actually something you said earlier that goes along with that, which is how are you supposed to pay for medical care when you don't have a job? And and in the United States, we tie health insurance to employment, right? So you don't have a job, so you don't have health insurance, and you don't have an income, so you can't pay cash to see a doctor, so you can't get medical care. So you therefore don't have enough medical records for a disability claim because you can't, it, it's, it's crazy, right? It's, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, well, and even if you have Medicaid, Medicaid doctors are so overworked and over overscheduled that often it's very difficult to get them to fill out the, the medical forms that you need to file accurately because they are so over impacted getting the documentation you need can be difficult even if you do access medicaid doctors yeah and that's actually not just medicaid doctors the thing is the way doctors get paid in the united states um, through insurance companies is they have to justify every 15 minutes of their time with a diagnosis and how they were touching you to evaluate you or what tests they were running. So when you present them a one or two page form that's going to take 15 minutes to fill out, if there's no code on that sheet, they can't fill that. They're really, it's, they can be hesitant to fill that out and they might not tell you, right? You, you, you go to a doctor, you give them the form. Oh yeah, well, I'll, I'll get to this. We'll, we'll mail it to you. And then you never see that form again because they didn't want to take the time. So as you said at the beginning, the whole system is designed in a very specific way. And it's designed to make it really, really difficult and to put up a lot of barriers for claimants. 
we don't want you to be able to access, we want you to pay into the system, but we don't want you to be able to then access those benefits. The thing is, Social Security Disability Insurance, SSDI, it's an insurance program. So it's run by the government, but it's run just like any other insurance program. We make it really easy to pay in and difficult to get money out. So since you bring up the pay-in system, you know, you get your check, you see you have these taxes taken out and all of that. People don't get paid the same on disability. There's a wide range of what folks get paid out. So how do you know if you have enough in the insurance fund to qualify for benefits? Uh, because not everybody's going to have that. That's a great question. And there are different kinds of work. You have employees, you have people who are self-employed, you have gig workers. Uh, and so the way Social Security disability insurance works is there are two programs. One we're not going to talk about right now is called Supplemental Security Income or SSI because that's just funded through regular income taxes. That's not an insurance program. The SSDI program is the one you pay for through your social security tax. If you're self-employed, it's the self-employment tax. And that you might notice on your pay stub is called OASDI, which stands for old age, it's a terrible name, old age, retire, think retirement, survivors and disability insurance. So it actually pays for all three. So the same tax that goes to fund the retirement at full retirement age, which for us, I think is 67, uh, also goes to fund the disability program. And, and I go through all of this in the book explaining how taxing and credit system works. But basically what you do is you pay in and you earn credits. And I explain how much you need to earn a credit and how those credits work and how many credits you need to have a disability claim. I explain all that in the book. But you, you pay in, you earn credits, and that gives you a date last insured, which literally is what it sounds like. It's your insurance runs through that date. And you can go on to the My Social Security uh, website and create a profile. And you can log in and it'll tell you if you became disabled today, this is the amount you would get. And I believe there's also a place on there to find your date last insured. Um, one thing I wish we had access to is something that Social Security employees have access to. It's a program that literally shows you quarter by quarter all of your credits. And it's fantastic and it's incredibly accurate. And that's how Social, social Security employees verify whether you were insured. And as I worked for Social Security, I would use that all the time to check someone's insurance to make sure they were insured to see if, hey, maybe they were actually we didn't think they were insured, but it turns out they are, and we can actually pay them even more benefits. I did that too. Um, but for those of us who aren't Social Security employees, the Social Security website is pretty good. And like I said, it tells you not only if you're insured, but when and the amount. And then maybe you look at that and you decide uh, it's worth or not worth filing a claim. And also, it depends on how close you are to retirement age. If you're 61, Maybe you think, oh, the grid rules are in my favor, or maybe you think, eh, it's only a few years, so I'll just get retirement, not enough to prove anything to anyone. So there's a lot of individualized considerations. So you talk about paying into the fund and coming, if you're an employee, you're, your employer is supposed to pay that, take that out of your check and pay it as part of the, the payroll. We've had a guest on the show uh, 
couple years ago, Katori Knight. And when they filed for disability, they found out they had an employer for two and a half years who never paid into the fund. So they didn't have the credits for those two years, two and a half years of working. Is For instances like that, because there's plenty of sketchy employers out there, how do you know you're actually paying into the fund? Is it just you go on mysocialsecurity.gov or is it something else? That, but there's a couple of different issues um, that you just brought up. And I actually saw this recently uh, in a, I, I do volunteer uh, in unemployment cases in the state of Washington. And I saw this come up in a case recently where the person was not an employee. They thought they were an employee. They, they the person said, I'm your employer, use the word employee but they were never actually on the books as an employee. So the first thing is, are you getting pay stubs every two weeks? Um, if you're not getting a pay stub, you're probably not an employee. Just getting a check is not enough. You need to get a pay stub showing all of the things, the taxes withheld from your uh, from your check. And one of those should say Medicare, one of them should say OASDI, which is the social security tax. The other thing is at the end of the year, are you getting a 1099, which suggests you're a self-employed gig worker? Or are you getting a W-2, which is given to employees? And that W-2 shows for the whole year, here's the social security tax that was withheld and the Medicare tax and the income tax. If you're getting that, then you've paid into the fund and your employer should have paid into the fund. And if they're not, that that's very illegal, obviously, on their part, but at least you have documentation showing, hey, I paid and I was an employee. The problem, I think, is a lot of people think of themselves as employees. They get a paycheck, either direct deposit or a physical check, that they never get a pay stub. And maybe they get a 1099. Maybe they don't even file income taxes at the end of the year, which I am not endorsing, by the way. It's federal law that you are required to file an income tax return and to be truthful on that income tax return. And everyone should do that. But the other reason everyone should do that is if you're self-employed, you don't pay the tax until the end of the year. So you're paying this lump sum or, or, or you're making quarterly estimates. But the point is you're not reporting to the IRS that you've made this self-employment tax payments until the end of the year when you get your tax return. And that's what they base your social security credits off of. So if you never pay that tax, you don't get those credits. And I can't tell you how many times I saw someone having an SSI claim who said, but I also want social security disability insurance because SSI has asset and income limitations and maybe they don't qualify for SSI. So they would want social security disability insurance, the SSTI claim, but they were working under the table, weren't paying the tax, they didn't pay for the insurance program until they needed the insurance benefit. And all of a sudden they wanted to be in the insurance program. But that is, of course, not how insurance works. You have to pay in before you need it. So yeah, my advice is for people, know if you're a W-2 employee or a 1099. And if you're not a W-2 employee, if you're not getting pay stubs every two weeks, that means you're probably self-employed, which means you need to file your tax return at the end of the year. 
accurately report your income, accurately report your self-employment tax. If you don't, you're not going to get the Social Security credit, which also means you won't get Social Security when you retire either. So we have a lot of people who are self-employed. They either run their own business or they're gig workers or they're in entertainment. And for folks in those situations, is it just filing the taxes at the end of the year that'll get you qualified for this? Or, you know, there's there's a lot of people, especially with COVID when stuff shut down, proving that they were employed and entitled to unemployment. It can be hard if you're a contract worker or if you're self-employed. So in those situations, what are the considerations? Unemployment was a huge mess. And the reason is in many states, people before March of 2020 who were self-employed didn't actually qualify for unemployment. It was only for employees. The good news, if there is any, is that that's not the case for Social Security. Social Security applies to everyone who pays the Social Security tax. And as I said, that's either through your employer's payroll or if you're self-employed, it's called the self-employment tax. And it covers Social Security and Medicare. And I explain in part one of the book how this is calculated and what the percentages are and what it'll how you do it. But um, you, you have to make sure that you filed your tax return and on the tax return, there's a line and it'll calculate, you just say, here's what I earned and it'll calculate for you. And it'll say self-employment tax. That is your social security and your Medicare. And that is what you, you pay it to the IRS, you report it to the IRS, but they tell social security and then social security will give you your credits based on that. And like I said, you can always go to social security and verify that you I think there's a lag time because we don't file our taxes till April and then it takes them the rest of that year. So like you might not see your 2020 numbers until 2022. So there is a lag, but you will eventually get the credits and your insurance amount will be based on what you've paid into the system. So yeah, that mess with unemployment and gig workers and people who are self-employed not qualifying that's not the case with Social Security as long as you understand what kind of worker you are, how you're classified, and as I said at the beginning, understand what you need to do as a claimant or potential claimant to make sure that you're part of the system so that if and when you need those benefits, you can apply and qualify for them. With so much with healthcare and anything involving healthcare, bias comes in. And so we have folks who work as strippers or in the adult film industry. You know, I just finished a fundraiser for a woman who's an adult film star and she got TMJ and can't give blowjobs, uh, which obviously impacts her ability to work. So it impacts her ability just from a social security perspective, it impacts her ability to do that specific type of work, right. but not other work in the national economy. But with that, do people look at the type of jobs you've had? And is there any play of bias like, oh, this is a less desirable job or this job I may have feelings about. Um, so let's deny this claim. Does that come up? Well, there's not supposed to be, of course, but there can be. And it's not just because of uh, the type of jobs you've had. If for whatever reason, when you get to the hearing level, 
if the judge, for whatever reason, wants to deny your claim, they'll decide they're denying your claim and then they'll work their way back and figure out how to do it. I talk about that in part three of the book. That's one of those things that the agency doesn't tell you about, but of course we know that that happens and they'll almost always be able to find a way. There's sometimes not. I had a case once where there was no way to deny the claim. I won't get into the details because it was really specific, but it was a grid rule and uh, there was just no way to deny the claim. The judge told me to deny it. And I explained to him, I can't, here's why, you know, if you see something I don't, let me know. And like two hours later, he barged into my office, threw the file at me, grumbled, pay it and walked out. So, but that, but usually they, they are able to find a way. But specifically talking about past work, so that's step four of the sequential evaluation process where the agency says, can you, even with your impairments, do any of your past jobs? And then if not, can you do other work in the national economy? Well, the reason they don't really need to discriminate against those past jobs is because they can just ignore your past work and say, it's fine, you can't do your past work, but you can do other work in the, in the national economy. Now, once you get over age 50, the rules become more favorable, as we talked about, uh, for the claimant, and then they need to take a stronger look at past jobs and, and think about whether you could do any of your past work or if you've acquired skills that you could transfer to different types of jobs. Um, but that's really more for if highly skilled jobs. Like for example, if you're a doctor, you can't be a surgeon, you can't work with your hands anymore, but maybe you could teach, right? So I, I think the question you're asking more is in regard to bias against that particular job. And no, they're not supposed to, but, and there's other industries as well that Amen a judge will look at other types of entertainment, like for example, professional athletes. People don't think of that as a job, but it is in the entertainment category of the DOT. And it might be the same kind of thing where the judge has some kind of personal grudge. Again, ah, that's not a real job. That's not real work. We're going to, we're going to find a way to deny this claim. So is it supposed to happen? no, does it happen? Yes. But as we talked about at the very beginning, sometimes that actually is within the law because the, the law design, it designs the system so that the judge can say, well, sorry, you can't do that work. We'll just decide that you can be a dishwasher or an elevator operator. Yeah, it, it, that's part of the frustration, too, is for some people, you've spent a lifetime training for this career. And then to be told, well, you're going to take this massive demotion, be making a tenth of what you were, but you'll still be working and making the minimum um, to, required to deny Social Security can be devastating um, because people get very tied to their jobs. Right. And different impairments impacts uh, the likelihood of being approved in different ways. So vision impairments, hearing impairments a jaw impairment, like the one you just mentioned, TMJ, these don't impact your ability to stand and walk. So things like 
working in a, mo a movie theater ticket taker. These, these are all real jobs, by the way, that vocational experts will cite as things you can do. You can stand there and tear tickets. You could be a fast food worker. You could be a cashier. You stand at a register, you take money, you make change. So the, the system recognizes and gives more credit to back and knee and shoulder impairments than it does to things like hearing impairments or a problem with the jaw that don't have as much of an impact on the types of the, the amount of jobs that are available to someone. So when someone has a non-visible disability, it's much, much harder because it literally looks like you can do all of these jobs that you know you can't do, at least not on a full-time basis, but the judge doesn't see it that way. And so they say, oh, here are all things you can do. You can stand, you can walk, you can lift 20 pounds. And of course, once the judge says that to the vocational expert, the vocational expert is going to find all kinds of different jobs that you can do that match that profile. Another issue that some of our, our former guests have, have talked about is people don't grow up thinking, I'm going to become disabled or this is going to be an issue right? Uh, we tend to think of people either as you're born with some significant disability and you get SSDI at that point, you're in a high risk job for injury and that happens. But most folks who are working in an office or doing programming or whatever, tend not to think of themselves as becoming disabled and conceptualizing that you've gone from an able-bodied person to a disabled-bodied person can be very hard for people to come to terms with. Does it matter when you start this whole process, like, let's say it took two, you haven't been able to work for a year because of a disability, and you finally decide, okay, I'm going to apply now, versus you get sick and you think, mm, I, I think, you know, I'm becoming disabled. And so two months after you start working, stop working, you apply. Does that make any difference? So what's interesting is, as you pointed out, some people have impairments since birth, other people, it's a, some sort of traumatic incident. That's pretty common in a warehouse situation. But actually, I think the most common, from my experience doing thousands of cases, what you're describing is actually the most common way that people become disabled. And the reason they don't recognize it is it's gradual. And we have a name for this. It's called aging. People just get older. We, you're in your 20s and your 30s and you're working with them. Once you start to get into your 40s, and for some people, they they're, they hit 50 and they're fine, but then in their 50s, heart conditions, the shoulders wear out, the knees wear out, the back wears out, all kinds of different things. It might be neurological, it might be arthritis, things happen. It's a normal aging process. But when that normal aging process prevents you from working full-time, that's where the disability system should come into play. Um, and your question was, does it matter when you file a claim? And like almost every other question, my answer is going to be sort of, which again, mm -hmm. it's why I put it all in the book because there are, there are different answers depending on your circumstances. You should file as soon as you think you're disabled. There's no reason to wait because I mentioned a little bit earlier that if you stop paying into the insurance program, your insurance will end. You'll have a date last insured. Once you get past that date, 
you still had insurance and that never goes away. And you could say, okay, I became disabled before my date last insured and Social Security will look Mm -hmm. at your claim. But they're not going to look at anything after that date. So today's July, uh, it's now July of 2022. If your date last insured was December 31st of 2019 and you become disabled today, you're not insured. You'd have to prove you became disabled before the DLI. And so that's why it's important to file as soon as you become disabled. The other reason is the way the payment system works is based on when you file and you can only go back a certain amount of time. So if you wait two years and then you file and then you are found disabled, you're not going to get paid for that whole time. So there was no reason to wait. Now, the flip side to that is people might think, well, I don't have a lot of medical records yet. I Do I need to establish a, a, a history, a longitudinal history of medical records? And the answer is yes. The, the agency needs to see that you're going to be disabled for at least 12 months or likely to be disabled for 12 months in the future. And so, again, we see how the system is really stacked against people. They don't want you to wait, so you file, but then you filed and you don't have enough medical records. So they tell you, well, you don't have enough medical records, you should wait. But then, of course, if you wait, you get paid less. So it's all an individualized consideration, which is why the two main themes throughout the book, Social Security Disability Revealed, are have a representative that can sit down with you and assess your specific situation and educate yourself so that you can assess your specific situation. And I tried to provide in the book, here's all the different considerations, all the different questions to ask yourself about your situation. But I, of course, can't analyze your situation. Only you can analyze your situation. And and I, I second both having a representative you know, don't do this on your own. This is not a DYI project. You know, this is this is not a time to skimp on possible representation. And two, you also have to know what's going on because you cannot, you're the one giving your, your representative all the information. So for folks who are looking at filing, how do you even go about filing, finding a representative or a lawyer to represent you at the beginning of the process? It's an excellent question. And so I actually talk about in the book how to find a lawyer, how to hire them, how to fire them if you need to. And the most important thing, I think, because it's it's just the question people tend to ask the most is how either how they get paid or what's the catch. And of course, the catch is that they're professionals and they want to be paid for their services. But Social Security representatives have very strict and specific rules for how they get paid, and they uh, are set by Congress and by the agency. And it's great for both the claimants and the representatives. It's great for the claimant because there's a maximum, there's a cap how much they can get paid. It's really not very much. If you're approved for benefits, you're probably getting 10,000 or more in back benefits because it takes so long before you get approved. And then 1,000, 1,500 every month going forward. And the attorneys have a cap of $6,000. That's going up later this year, but at the moment, it's $6,000 that they can get paid. And it's only out of your back benefits. So they don't touch any future benefits. They don't touch your Medicare benefits. 
Um, and, and this system, even though it's really not a lot of money for the amount of work that they do, it works for the representatives because they don't have to worry about getting paid. They get paid directly by Social Security out of your back benefits. So if your claim is approved, they only get paid if your claim is approved and they get a, a certain amount up to 25% or $6,000 of your back benefits. You get the rest. You get all your future benefits. It really does work well for both parties. And I talk in the book about what a fee agreement is and what that'll look like and how you'll do a fee agreement with your representative. But it's not like some other legal industries where like they're getting a third and they can get a third of everything. It's not like that at all. It's a a very uh, specific and capped amount. The flip side to that is remember, they're not making very much money which means for social security representatives, whether they be attorneys or non-attorneys, it's a volume business. They take a lot of cases. And that's why it's really important that claimants be educated on the process. The representative, they'll go with you to your hearing and they'll review your records and they'll write a one-page brief to the judge, but they don't have time to have your case be their only case. They're spending a couple of hours on your case And that's it. They have to have a lot of other cases because some of those cases are not going to be approved and they get nothing if a case is denied. And then, of course, the cases that are approved, they're only getting a maximum of $6,000. So, and again, this is all filed under the understanding how this works, who the representatives are, how they get paid so so that you as the claimant understand what their role is and what your role is, because the claimant has a role in the process. You're not turning everything over to the representative. They have a very specific role, but it's a limited role. It's really important that the claimant be educated. Yeah, no, it was it was one of the few advantages I had going into the system is having run a state agency. I kind of understood how government worked. I understood how to do the CYA stuff and had all sorts of documentations, you know, emails to my, my, my boss saying, I need to reduce my hours. I need, I, you know, I've got, because mine was gradual. Um, I got sick gradually and having, even having all of that, it still took forever to get through the system and fight it. Um, So yeah, if you start getting sick, even if you don't think it's going to end up in a permanent disability, start keeping those records of like, Hey, I need to take four sick days. Hey, I need these four doctor's appointments in the next month to your, you know, when you're asking for time off, because it makes a difference. A journal is a really, really good thing, keeping records of all your medical visits, uh, but also making sure when you actually see these medical providers that you're getting good records from them. And that's particularly, a lot of times medical doctor's offices, especially like these huge hospital chains, it'll say like, here, here's what you said, and here are the medications you used to be on that you're not even on anymore, and they're wildly inaccurate. And that's if you even get records. But a lot of alternative sources, like acupuncturists, massage therapists, counselors, they may not keep written records at all. So yeah, it's really important to choose your sources wisely to make sure that your, your medical record will tell the story you want to tell. Make sure that your sources are keeping really good records 
And again, it all starts with knowing how that's all going to be used in the future so that you know what you need to do now. One of the unfortunate things is most people don't think about social security disability until they need it. And even then, until they're denied, they assume they're going to be approved. Like you said earlier, once they're denied, that's the point where they're going to go on Amazon and maybe buy the book. But actually, as we talked about, what's the number one cause of disability? Aging. So I really think the book could be useful for anyone because if you are able-bodied and you work full-time now, that might not be the case two or three years from now. And yeah, the system may change a little bit, but at the point where you think like, ow, I've got to go see a doctor or I've got my shoulder hurt, the, that's where it starts. That's where your 2027 disability claim might be starting now in 2022 with medical records, right? So anything you can do to help educate yourself on the process before it starts, now, granted, if you're already in it, that's okay. Go buy the book and re-educate yourself now. If you have a hearing coming up, educate yourself now. There's a whole section about hearings. Maybe you've already lost your case and you think, I guess I'm just done. Well, no, you can appeal. And there's a section in the book about appeal. So wherever you are in the process, it's useful. But don't think that because you haven't started yet, it's not useful. If you're going to be going through this process in the future, that's the best time to, to learn this information. And I want to underscore that because with COVID, there's so much we don't know and what the long-term impacts are. Some of the estimates are 10% of the people who got COVID, even if it was an initially a mild infection, may have long COVID symptoms that prevent you from working in the future. And that is an enormous number of people in, in the U.S. who are looking at potentially long-term disabling events. So just being familiar with it now if you happen to be in that 10%, you may be really grateful later on, you knew what to do now, right? And that's particularly important with something like COVID because I'm not a doctor, of course, but my understanding is there's a wide range of ways that the, that can impact you from I have no symptoms at all to I'm on a ventilator. And so what the judge and vocational expert decide later your limitations are and how that impacts the jobs you can do all comes down to what those medical records say. And if it's that I just have a lot of fatigue, I'm tired all the time, so I can't do a full-time job, that's something that's really hard to prove. It's hard to prove why you're tired. It's hard to prove how tired you are. It's hard to prove that you were, you know, tired to the point where, well, I could work 30 hours, but not 35. Well, I could work 35, but not 40. Where's the cutoff? And so one of these not, is the non-visible physical impairment. And I have a section in the book where I discuss how difficult non-visible physical impairments are to prove. And with those impairments, because they're so difficult, it's even more, because you can't prove it with an MRI or an x-ray, it's even more important to get incredibly thorough documentation over a really long period of time. 
I, I can't say how important that is because that's what happened in my case. And having literally thousands of pages of medical records from multiple specialists was the only way I was able to pain because they can't measure it's self-report like there's not a lab test that says yes you're at this level of pain fatigue is another one right these invisible ones nobody wants to believe you have you know i was told over and over again by social security well you're just lazy you just don't you know you just don't want to work and it's like right with 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 pain and fatigue it all comes down really to does the judge find you as a, a credible witness and uh there are a lot of considerations there, and I, I talk about the hearing process in the book and, and how your testimony as the claimant will go, but it really all comes down to credibility. And when the judge is deciding whether you're credible, they look at your activities, they look at what you've been doing. As you mentioned earlier, did you try to work? What kinds of jobs did you try doing? Uh, but also, of course, your medical records. If, if You've got an MRI showing significant uh, spondylosis in the spine and you say, I'm in pain, they're probably going to believe you. You've got something objective. But for these non-visible impairments like fibromyalgia or EDS or neurological disorders, it becomes a lot harder to prove. And that's it's just one of those quirks of the fact that just modern medicine it doesn't fully understand what causes pain. I've seen a lot of reports from neurologists, and that's their expertise area, right? Where they'll discuss the person's symptoms and say something like unspecified pain disorder as the diagnosis. So it's just, it's one of those things that if, if the doctors can't explain it, how are you ever going to be able to explain it to the judge? Exactly, exactly. Well, this, I would definitely endorse, you know, picking up this book for, for people. It's, it's going to be incredibly useful. I'm thrilled that you wrote it, especially with your expertise. So if our readers want to find you, if they want to find your book, plug all the things. Sure. So the book is called Social Security Disability Revealed, Why It's So Hard to Access Benefits and What You Can Do About It. And it's on Amazon in paperback and ebook. But it's also on all the other places you would think you'd be able to find an ebook: Apple, Barnes and Noble, Scribd, Kobo. Uh, also, you could request your library to order it, or your local independent bookstore, bookstore, and they can order it through the Ingram catalog. Uh, and if you forget all of that, you can go to BishonsPublishing.com. That's B-I-S-H-I-N-S Publishing, BishonsPublishing.com. And we've got links to all the different places that you can order the book. We're also on Instagram and Facebook at Bishons Publishing. On Twitter, uh, that was too long. So we're Bishons Pub, which is great in case I ever decide to open a British pub. I've already got the name. But yeah, the, if you remember nothing else, BishonsPublishing.com or social security disability revealed, because you could put that into whatever search engine you use, but we all know which one that is, and it will come up. Thank you so much for being on the show. And for our listeners, we'll make sure we have all of those links up on the site and you can go check it out. Thank you again for having me. Hi, 
Hi, this is Auntie Vice from Fat Chicks on Top. October is just around the corner and that's International Kink Month. In preparation for that, I'm offering some special discounts. If you go to my shop at AuntieVice.com backslash shop, you can pick up a second edition of Love Letters to a Unicorn for $5 off using the code PREPFORFULSOME. If you are interested in kink coaching by me personally, you can try a free session. You can book a session for coaching and use the code MYFIRSTTIME and that'll get you a free 50-minute consult. For listening to this episode of Fat Chicks on Top. Please like, subscribe, and review our podcast on whatever platform you listen to it on. If we like your review, we may even read it online. This has been an Auntie Vice production. Producer and host, Rebecca Blanton. Audio production by Sharon Smith. Music by David Manga. And more music by Sharon Smith. For more information about Fat Chicks on Top, please visit our website for all things Fat Chicks at fatchicksontop.com.